Would you please recite with me the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The word logo, logo, according to one definition, a recognizable graphic design element often including a name, symbol, or trademark representing an organization or product. Here's some logos maybe you recognize. What's that? Target. Next. You got it. That's right. <laughs> you don't even need to see a face, do you? You just, you just need to see the circles. Um, and you know, for some of those logos, it's more than just an identifying marker. It's a worldview. It's a way of seeing the world. Um, here's a couple of other logos. Sometimes logos have emotional freight to them, do they not? Here's another one. Yeah. You know what those logos are of? Christianity. Oh, um, those in the first century wouldn't identify those as much, but they would that. This instrument of exec execution. The cross. For us, it's jewelry. For us, it's church furnishing. But for someone in the first century, it was abhorrent. Just, a, a, just abhorrent. I can't say it any other way than that. A crucifixion in the Roman world was a slave's death. Uh, Roman citizens were never crucified. They would have been beheaded. Swift death. Crucifixion was not. Uh, in crucifixion, Rome sent a message to the masses. And it's this. Don't mess with us. Uh, Would-be messiahs, don't mess with us. We will humiliate you. We will strip you naked. We will impale stakes in your wrists and feet. And then we'll set the cross in a very public place so that everyone can see you and mock you. And then we'll build a little seat there on that cross so that you can sit on it and ride up and down the cross. 
to make your death even more horrible until you either bleed out or suffocate. Well, we'll just let the executioners do to you whatever it is they want to do with you as long as you die. No one survives the cross. No one. And so Alistair McGrath would write in his book, What Was God Doing on the Cross? Any organization which would choose as its logo a hangman's noose, a firing squad, a gas chamber, an electric chair would accordingly seem to have taken leave of its senses. It would be sheer madness to choose an instrument of execution as a symbol of an organization. Its members would instantly be regarded as perverted, sick, having a morbid obsession with death, or having some nauseating interest in human suffering. It would be an advertising agency's nightmare. Only an organization determined to fail as quickly and as spectacularly as possible would be mad enough to choose such a symbol. And yet here we are. Here we are 2,000 years later. The symbol of the cross dominates Christianity. And there is a portion of the creed which we recited that deals with the cross. The cross. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and buried. And then that very interesting phrase that I'm finally going to get to today. He descended into hell. What is that? Today I want us to consider the fact of the cross, the meaning of the cross, and the effect of the cross as we continue our series through the Apostles' Creed. This uh, statement of uh, Orthodox Christianity, matters of first importance. Crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell. Uh, um, you may be here today exploring Christianity. Um, for some reason, you may have uh, decided this weekend, I'm going to go to church. And here you are. Um, this is a good Sunday. You may be here today and you may be struggling with a, a past that you cannot change. Something happened that you did or something happened to you and it, you can't fix it. You can't go back. You can't repair. Um, it, it, on Friday night, our Celebrate Recovery community meets and uh, we, uh, we, heard this, we heard this quote Friday from our teacher, Dave King, you cannot unring the bell. You can't unring the bell. And you may be here because you're struggling with that. You may be here because you've reached every goal in your life that you've ever wanted to reach. Um, I heard a testimony about that just Friday. The person said, I reached every goal in life that I wanted. And then I wondered why I was so empty. Huh. Well, this is a good Sunday. Because the cross addresses 
the, those who have experienced failure and those who have experienced empty success. The cross. The cross. The Apostle Paul once said, I, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And then he said, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And then he said this, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So on the one hand, the apostle Paul acknowledged his past. He realized, I cannot unring the bell. I can't. But what I can do is live a life of resurrection brought by the resurrected one. And that's why, because of the cross, the Apostle Paul, when you read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, although he acknowledged his past, which included killing, he never agonized with ongoing guilt or shame about his violent life before Christ. And why? Because Jesus conquered Paul, and Paul was a new man, and it was because of the cross. That's why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest in human wisdom, but on God's power, the cross is the power of God, Paul says, and it changed my life, and it will change your life too. So let's consider the fact, the meaning, and the effect of the cross. The fact, that's that part of the creed that says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Isn't that interesting? That a, a, a a pagan Roman appears in the Apostles' Creed. Why is that? Well, consider these quotes from history. Consider the first century quote from uh, Flavius Josephus, a non-Christian pro-Roman Jewish historian. Josephus wrote, About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had him condemned to be crucified. That's Josephus. That's first century. Here's the second century. This is A.D. 115 by a non-Christian Roman historian named Tacitus. He wrote, Christus had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilatus. That's A.D. 115. Uh, Non-Christian Roman historian. Uh, at the U of I library, I found a commentary on the Apostles' Creed written in the 5th century. Think about that. What we just recited, the whole commentary is written. Uh, uh, just an explanation of each line by a guy named Tyrannius Rufus. Tyrannius, that is a cool name. Tyrannius Boltinghouse. I don't know. Tyrannius Rufus. Tyrannius 
Who's your pastor's name? Tyrannius. Oh, wow. That's a cool name. I think I'll go to your church. Tyrannius Rufus. Tyrannius Rufus wrote, The creed shows forethought in specifying the actual date of the events under Pontius Pilate as a precaution against any vagueness or uncertainty of what happened. Huh. So, so why is Pilate's name there? It's there because Christianity is good news, not good ideas. So Christianity is not about abstract religious thought. It's not about legends or fantasies or fiction. It is about God acting in history. Pontius Pilate was a real person who ruled in the province of Judea between the years A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. He ruled on behalf of a real person named Tiberius Caesar, who was the Roman emperor between the years A.D. 17 and A.D. 37. So a real person named Pilate crucified a real person named Jesus in a real city named Jerusalem. It really did happen. You and I live in history. There's realism to Christian faith. The Apostle Paul would say in Acts 26, 26, that the crucifixion in Jerusalem did not happen in a corner. Everyone who was in Jerusalem that weekend knew what had happened. It was verifiable in history. And Pilate's name appears as a way of stamping a date on the crucifixion. Oh, and his name also appears to remind us of his own rejection of this real person named Jesus. You can read about his fascinating exchange with Jesus in John's Gospel, chapters 18 and 19. Fascinating. It's fascinating because uh, Pilate goes into his headquarters to meet with Jesus. And then, after he talks with Jesus, he goes outside to talk to Jesus' enemies. And that's what's going on in John 18 and 19. Pilate goes in to talk to Jesus. Then Pilate goes out to talk to Jesus' enemies. In, out. And he's going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth like a gopher. And he's supposed to be in charge. It's like the reader is going, make a decision, man. Jesus said to Pilate, everyone... Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone. And what did Pilate say? You know. What is truth? Wow. Well, he made his decision, didn't he? And Pilate reminds us all that we have business to do with the fact of Jesus. I find it interesting, don't you, that in the creed are two names. <laughs> two names. <laughs> they, couldn't be, they couldn't be two more opposite people, the Virgin Mary and Pontius Pilate. Mary, who said, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have spoken. And then there's Pilate. What is truth? And we who recite the creed are left to ask of ourselves, which camp am I in? Hmm. See. What will be our response? 
to the fact of the cross. Well, the fact of the cross is why it's history. He was crucified, dead, and buried. But the meaning of the cross is why we gather, is it not? And thus the question, what was Jesus doing on the cross? What was Jesus doing on the cross? He was suffering with us. He was suffering for us. That's what I want to talk about here. He was suffering with us. When the Apostle Paul was persecuting Christianity, Jesus stopped him in his tracks. You remember the question that he asked the Apostle Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As if to say, when the church suffers, we don't suffer alone. Christ suffers with us. When you are around a hospital bed and someone you loved is about ready to die. When we bury our loved ones, when, when our pain comes from a broken body or a broken heart or a lonely life or an, an unfulfilled dream, we never suffer alone. John Stott is a pastor and a theologian and he once wrote, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross because there's just too much pain in this world. In a real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? And then Stott said this, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have to turn away, and instead, in my mind, I turn to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding, mouth dry, intolerably thirsty. He is plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood and tears and death, and he did not have to do that. In the poem, The Scars of Jesus, the poet wrote, The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. He suffered with us. When, when you're hurting and you're wondering about God, sometimes there is no answer but the cross. And I just want to tell you, you can trust a God who bleeds. You can trust that God. I have, I am, I will, will you? He suffered with us. And then he suffered for us. One version of the creed, the Nicene Creed reads, for us and for our salvation, for our sake. And later on in the creed, we read that statement, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Colossians 2, 13 and 14. 
And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. That has to do with just a calloused heart toward God. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Why the cross? For our sins. For us. Which prompts the question, well, why can't God just say, don't worry about it? Well, it's okay. It's no big deal. Why why can't he just say that? Two examples. Let's say you go on a weekend trip. And you leave the house on Friday and return Sunday late afternoon. You're there late Sunday afternoon. You want to get things unpacked and get ready for the week. But you walk in your front door and this awful stink hits you in the face. And you follow your nose to the kitchen And to the trash can, and there it is, the fish that you threw out Friday. Yeah, I mean, there it is, right there. You just just illustrated my point, right? I mean, you were going to take the trash outside but forgot, and the furnace was on all weekend, and now your nose is paying for it, right? So what do you do? Well, you get out the Febreze, right? And you just... Spray it all over the fish there in the trash. Oh, no, that's not what you do. You, oh, you get out one of those scented trash bags, and you just put it all in there and then put it back in the trash, right? No, no, it's going out. It's got to go out. It's got to go out. It's out. If that's how you are in your house, how do you think God is in his it's got it's to go out. Totally taken away from God's white-hot holiness. It has to be forgiven. It has to be taken out. And, and do you know that response? That response to that stinky fish, that, that wincing aversion? Do you know what the Bible calls that response that we, that we just kind of experience? The Bible calls that wrath. Wrath. Hmm. Wrath is not divine emotional instability. Wrath is not God's raging moodiness. That's not wrath. Wrath is God's settled antagonism to sin. It's God's settled antagonism to sin. It's, it's, it's God saying, it's got to go out. It's got to go out. Hmm. And for that, forgiveness is required. Here's illustration number two. I'll just show it to you. What is this? Talk to me. What game? Super Bowl. You remember. Yeah, Super Bowl. Super Bowl 34. Last play of the game. That's been titled, uh, One Yard Short. Or some, some have titled it, The Tackle. Okay, there it is. One yard short. Last play of the game. So they just gave it to him, right? No, of course not. No, because that's called law. <laughs> that's called law. <laughs> they, the, I mean, the integrity of the game is at stake. 
He may as well have been 99 yards short as to be one yard short, right? Might as well. I mean, God has law. God has rules. God has expectations. And some religions teach that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, if you're close enough, you know, if you're on the 51-yard line, that's, you know, that's silly. God doesn't balance your good deeds with your bad deeds. We're not forgiven by balancing debt. We're only forgiven by the cancellation of debt. That's why Paul says in Colossians 2, 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. And how was our debt canceled? Christ on the cross. Christ nailed to the cross. Christ became my record of debt. Christ became my trespass. Christ suffered damnation for me instead of me as my substitute. Christ was treated the way I would have been treated were I to pay for my trespasses. That's why none of us can claim righteousness or goodness or good works as being good enough to get to heaven because we all fall short. We all fall short. But in that state of falling short, Christ came. And 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You see, the essence of sin is living for self. Living for my own puny kingdom of one. Living for the empire of Randy. That's why I insist on my way. That's why I like to be right. That's why I don't like to share. That's why I get irritable. That's why I shut myself off from my wife. That's why I get impatient in traffic. That's why I hold grudges. I want to live for my wants my needs, my comfort, my preferences. I want what I want when I want it. And if I don't get it, I'm going to make you pay. And, and Jesus said on the cross, no, I'll pay. I'll pay. Only I can pay. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him, God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the good news is that on the cross, not, not only does God forgive and cancel my debt, but he credits me with his riches. See, a teacher may, a teacher may cancel an F from my grade book, but it doesn't mean I get an A. My bank may cancel my mortgage, but that doesn't make me a millionaire. Yet on the cross, get this, not only is my unrighteousness canceled, but Christ's righteousness is credited. There's a divinely authorized double exchange. He gets my sin and I get his glory. It's grace. It's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. I read an interesting story this week about an 11th grade history teacher in Kentucky. 
he was picking up exams. He had given his class exams about uh, World War II. He was picking up the exams when he noticed an asterisk with a small note toward the bottom of one exam. It says, if you could, can you give my bonus points to whoever scores the lowest? That's grace. That's grace. Now, if you were the fortunate recipient of those bonus points, would you brag about yourself? No, you wouldn't, would you? Paul says, Paul says in Romans 3.27, what becomes of our boasting? So none of us can enter this room of worship and say, wow, I really killed it for Jesus this week. <laughs> that sounds silly, doesn't it? Is there anything you see in my life that resembles Jesus in any way, shape, or form? It's bonus points from Jesus. That's what it is. That's all it is. He suffered with us. He suffered for us. And he suffered in triumph. That's Colossians 2, 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And here's that phrase, he descended into hell. Oh my goodness. Let me talk quickly. Uh, with gratitude to Todd Daly from Urbana Theological Seminary for his research on this. Let's try to understand this. Uh, first, you must know the earliest forms of the creed don't have this phrase. And there are three main understandings or interpretations of this phrase, he descended into hell. First, some say the phrase is another way of describing the horror of crucifixion. Crucifixion was like hell. Uh, John Calvin taught that. Others say the phrase descended into hell is just another way of saying that Jesus' body was in the tomb. Okay, uh, uh, Tyrannus Rufus taught that. Still others say that descended into hell is confusing because hell is a poorly translated word. It's really the wrong word. Um, in Acts chapter 2 verse 31 Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. He quotes the psalmist saying that Jesus was not abandoned to Sheol. That's the Hebrew word. Sheol. Nor did his flesh experience corruption. So the Hebrew term Sheol is a term that means the place of the departed. The abode of the dead. The unseen world of the departed spirit. So while Christ's body was in the tomb... Christ's soul was in Sheol, the domain of the dead. Uh, write down Luke 16, Luke 16, 19 to 31, Luke 16, 19 to 31, concerning the rich man in Lazarus. The rich man occupied a, kind of an unfortunate place called Hades, and Lazarus was in a sweet, pleasant place called Abraham's bosom. And together, uh, they were, it was almost like two compartments in this overall place called Sheol, the domain of the dead. And there in Sheol, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19, states that Christ proclaimed sovereign judgment over the disobedient demonic spirits. 
Now, the Episcopal Church actually has the most appropriate line in this creed. It simply says, he descended to the dead. He descended to the dead. What has helped me understand what that phrase means is Revelation 1.18. And here it is, tied all together. In Revelation 1.18, Christ said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Sheol, or Hades. In other words, in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, he has stripped the keys, and keys means authority, from the one who held the power of death, Satan. One church leader, uh, a pastor by the name of Tertullian, said Christ went to Sheol for this very purpose that we might not go there. The descent was not Christ's last act of suffering, but his first act of triumph. In other words, there is no place where Christ does not rule. There's no place where Christ does not have authority. Christ has the master key. His key unlocks any and every door, visible and invisible. There's no place where Christ does not have authority. That's what that phrase means. Which means if you are experiencing darkness or despair or depression, if you're experiencing what you feel like is hell or Hades or Sheol, perhaps you put yourself there. Perhaps someone else put you there. Hear this. You are not beyond Christ's power. You're not beyond the authority of the king. Corey Ten Boone, who is a survivor of the Holocaust, said, There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. Don't you see the big idea here? Wherever Christ goes, he conquers. Wherever Christ goes, the cross of Christ is Christ's chariot of glory. And that's why it has meaning for us today. And that's why the effect of the cross is no fear. No fear. And I can't say it any better than a preacher named Charles Spurgeon. He died and it is finished, shook the gates of hell. Down from the cross the conqueror leaped, pursued the fiend with thunderbolts of wrath. Swift to the shades of hell the fiend did fly, and swift descending went the conqueror after him. And we may conceive him exclaiming, Traitor, this bolt shall find and pierce thee through, though under hell's profoundest wave thou divest to find a sheltering grave. And seize him he did. Chained him to his chariot wheel. Dragged him up the steps of glory. Angels shouting all the while. He hath led captivity captive and received gifts for men. Now, devil, thou sayest thou would overcome me when I came to die. Satan, I defy thee. I laugh thee to scorn. My master overcame thee, and I shall overcome thee yet. That'll preach. Uh, and it's all because of the cross. More, more than a symbol of death and more than a symbol of hope, the cross is a symbol of hope in the midst of a world of death and suffering. 
The cross is the symbol of the God who's with us and for us in this dark world and beyond. The cross stands for hope that is real in a world that is real. But the world will pass away and the hope will remain for all eternity. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the cross. Amen.